Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is April the 9th, 2019. This is episode 2418 of the Survival Podcast. It's Tuesday. Time for a Just Jack show. That's right. Take a subject and break it down for you. And we're going to continue our permaculture series uh, for this spring 2019. I said I probably wouldn't do three in a row. And then I got up this morning and said, this is what I want to talk about. And since I do this show so that I can live the life that I want to live, and I designed that life primarily on permaculture principles, I thought well, that's what we would do. So it's just the mindset that I'm in. And part of it is because spring has sprung. It is so beautiful outside. I have been getting started very late on producing the podcast. For instance, I just hit the record button a couple seconds ago. And it's not when you're listening because it's, it's not live. It's Memorex. Some of you are old enough to know what that means. Some of you are not. You'll have to Google it. Um, but it is 1.39 p.m. It is uh, the case that in most days by 1.30 to 2 o'clock, I am not done, but I am done recording. I'm ready to grab some lunch and then come back and do the editing and uploading and sharing on social media and then sending the email and all that. It takes you know, another good hour, hour and a half, and then I'm done for the day. So today... I won't be to that point to the point where I'm normally done. And it is not because I've been a slacker. It's because I get up in the morning and I go outside and go, oh, there's all this stuff that needs to get done around here. And it's really beautiful out and it's not hot yet. And so I'm going to do a lot of work on it. So I spent about three hours tooling around in the property today, getting some things done, getting some stuff planted, making some design decisions and things like that. And so it just has me in this mindset to talk about permaculture. And I'll remind you as we go into this today that while permaculture really, well, most of what you'll find online about it uh, relies on agricultural type activities, growing food, growing livestock, and then other homesteading things like heating and, and stuff like that, that it can be, a, the, the principles we talk about can be applied to anything. But today, we're actually going to come below the principles, okay? And we're going to talk about strategy, technique, and tactic today. And what's really important to understand here is that when we're actually on our property figuring out what we want to do, we want to start with the strategy, determine the technique and then figure out how to tactically apply the technique so that we can interconnect the techniques so we end up with a total system. Okay, So from a design standpoint, we start with the strategy, and we finish with the technique and the tactic. Today we're going to flip that around. We're going to talk about the technique and the tactics, and then we're going to talk about strategy. And you might wonder why I would do that when really the other way around is, is kind of the way to go from a design standpoint. The reason is that I have over you know 10 years of teaching this stuff now found that people tend to understand it better when you get to the strategy discussion if they understand tactics and techniques when you get there. Because now that I know what's possible, I can sit back. So think about it like this. If I were to teach you a bunch of different things that you can do with computer programming on the Internet, 
You know, let's say we went into like JavaScript, and here's like 20 things you can do with JavaScript. Then you would be able to sit back and strategize. Okay, how do I tactically implement these techniques to get what I want? How do I figure out what I want first? And then can these techniques be assembled to make this thing happen? All right, so that's how we're coming at this today. And uh, we also want to talk about type 1 errors today. So we'll get into that first. We'll lead off talking about type 1 errors because it's very important. I'll explain why when we talk about them, it's so important to start there. Then we'll, we'll define technique, tactic, and strategy. Then we're going to go through some permaculture techniques. And we're going to end with, and many more, because we could not possibly uh, you know, cover them all in a podcast, even multiple podcasts. So we'll end with an end, and many more. And then we'll start talking about how to get tactical with those. Now, there's just really four steps that allow you to lay out the tactics that you will implement techniques with. And then we'll come up and we'll, we'll talk about how to build an overriding strategy. Because while many of us will use the same techniques and tactics, exactly how and where they will be employed and to what level will be driven primarily by our individual strategies. If my strategy is to build a farm then my implementation of techniques and tactics will look far different than if my desire is to build, let's say, an ecotourism site. Uh, and it will also be very different if my primary objective is to build a, a, a easy-to-manage homestead that will provide a lot of food and enjoyment for two people. And it will also be very different if my goal in doing it is to do that thing, to two people, provide it for them. But I also want an educational facility, be it for documentation online or be it for students to come. That will change my strategy there. They're all different strategies. So this will be great. We'll get to all of it in just a moment. Before we do, let's talk about our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Western Botanicals. Hey, look, you should be growing herbs on your homestead. But you're not going to grow every herb you need, and certainly not sometimes in the quantities that you need them to do everything that you want out of herbs. So it's great to be able to find a good supplier that you know is going to sell you either organically grown or wildcrafted herbs with real people that really care about you for a great price and all the other things you might need for making your own herbal supplements. Or if you don't want to do any of that, you just need herbal supplements to be able to get top-quality herbal supplements. You get all of that and more with Western Botanicals, plus they give away their premium membership, which gives you 25% off on everything they sell. They sell that membership for 50 bucks a year. As an MSB member, you get it for free the first year, and if you want to keep it after that, you get it for half price. So it covers your membership for the first year and a half immediately out of the gate if you're an MSB member. So great support. It's been with us for almost nine years. So, you know, they look after us. Let's look after them. Western Botanicals, my place to get herbs and herbal supplements Real people that really care. And when they, we call them and you answer the phone, you'll talk to someone in Utah, not someone in New Delhi. Just saying. Next up today, BulkAmmo.com. Look, <laughs> your gun, no ammo, equals a very expensive club. The only thing that makes a gun capable of doing what a gun is supposed to do is the ammunition that goes inside it. So you need ammo. You don't want to overpay for it. You don't want to wait too long for it. And you don't want to not be able to find what you're looking for. You get everything you're looking for at BulkAmmo.com, including a discount for members of the MSB. So check them out today, BulkAmmo.com. On that note, if you're not an MSB member, consider becoming one. I, I think by the time I'm done with this permaculture series, which is probably going to end up going a total of six episodes, and yes, we are going to take a break next week. I don't know what we're going to talk about, but it's not going to be part of this series next Tuesday. Um, 
but by the time I'm done with this, you could look at this and say, you know what, if I bought this audio series, it would be worth a year's membership by itself. Then there's all the rest of the podcast, then there's all the discounts, and you're supporting the show that you love. So do consider becoming an MSP member today. Just click on members at thesurvivalpodcast.com to learn more. And let's now talk about the hideous, the awful Type 1 error. Now, Type 1 errors are a thing. There's an entire science of screwing stuff up. I have a PhD in screwing stuff up, okay? Uh, I really don't. Just sometimes it feels that way. Um, but I prefer simplified definitions when they're sufficient for what you're trying to do. And when it comes to permaculture, the founder, and he's really the co-founder because David Holgram was a big part of it, but kind of the guy that I always lean on is Bill Mollison. And if Bill Mollison says it, I tend to agree with it until it's absolutely proven to be wrong, and that just almost never happens. And the way Mollison defined a Type 1 error is an error that you, you regret the minute you realize it and you continue to regret for the rest of your life or for as long as you are involved with the place you made it. So when you sell it, it goes to someone else, maybe in the back of your head, but you really don't care anymore. But as long as you live there, or as long as your farm or your piece of property or your business or whatever, you regret it. And what does that mean? That means that it is a very permanent error. It is either permanent or so expensive to rectify that it's not worth fixing, but yet it's still a problem. Examples of a Type 1 error would be you watched a bunch of videos on swales, So you got your, your hands on a backhoe from a friend, and you ripped a whole bunch of swales into your property. When you did that, you cut off access. Even though they were on contour, they were improperly implemented. They lacked strategy, and they lacked tactic. They were only a technique, and now you have these big scars on your land. It's almost a type 1 error, but not completely. It's like a type 1.5 or like a type 0.8 error, I guess, because at least it's a swale. And it would be relatively easy to get that backhoe again, take the front end loader on it, and push dirt back in the hole and pretend it never happened. It might take a while for the land to heal, but we can make it go away. We put in a pond in the wrong place. We have a type 1 error. It's, it's, it's almost impossible to make a pond completely go away. We build a house, and we build that house on a part of the property where it really was the wrong place to put the house. Houses can be moved. It ain't easy, and it's probably cost prohibitive. All right, We buy a piece of property in an area with a restriction that prevents us doing what we really want to do And we made the mistake of not identifying that restriction. The only solution now is to sell the property. And we're going to talk about scale of permanence today. And things like regulations, while are not immovable as a mountain, are way at the top of a scale of permanence. So these are type 1 errors. And the reason I'm leading off with this is so many people think techniques are permaculture. Techniques are techniques. Tactics are tactics. Strategies are strategies. Permaculture is a design science that implements the three of them together. So what happens is Joe, 
gets on YouTube because he hears about this fancy permaculture stuff, and he gets really hooked in, and he watches Bill Mollison's old Global Gardener series, and he sees these people in Africa changing their entire lives and feeding their, their entire villages off of these systems, and he gets emotional, and he feels like, wow. And then he sees Je Jeff Lawton's Green in the Desert, and, oh, my God, Jeff can do this in the desert. If he can do it in the desert, I know I can do it here in Tennessee. It's got to be easy. So he starts looking up all kinds of things on, on, uh, on YouTube. He comes across Jack Spierko building a hookah culture mound and says, I can do that. And since Jack's is a permaculture technique, it's permaculture. So Joe goes out and builds a giant hookah culture mound out in the middle of a field with no way to get water to it because it reduces, not eliminates the need for irrigation. Uh, plants a whole bunch of shit and it turns into a big giant dead pile of crap. Joe gets all mad. Now he's got a giant pile in the middle of his field. You can get rid of it. But it's it, it's going to take almost as much effort to get rid of, or about more, than it took to get it there in the first place. And you're going to regret it until it's gone, at least. So by confusing the technique with the design discipline of permaculture, we've committed a serious error because I got attached to the technique. And pro like I started off with on this section... Swales are probably the number one way this happens. People see a food forest built on a swale-based system, and my God, i got to have swales. I've said this before. If you live on relatively flat ground in a place that gets lots of rainfall spread out well over the year with deep soils, you may not need swales at all. Or you may use something far more subtle that we would call a swale-like feature. Uh, simply by putting access paths on contour through the property and then being strategic about how we plant, we can get a lot of the effect of swales without the radical application of this big giant ditch with a burn. But if we just get attached to the fact that food forest is permaculture and swales are how you make a food forest, so I need swales so I can have a food forest so I have permaculture. When I first started teaching this, I had to realize that I had to be very careful about what I would say. Because even though I understood what I was saying, it didn't mean that the person on the other end of the microphone did, right, on the, on the speaker end. And so I would talk about this stuff, and then I would have people, and it was actually the people that were objecting to what I was doing that helped me figure out how to stop telling people who were not objecting it, like, don't do this. Because they get people like, oh, I don't want to do permaculture, it's stupid. Well, why is it stupid? Well, I live in a swamp. So... Well, then why would I want swales? They'll just fill up with water and never empty and be mosquito traps even though they say they won't. Uh, yeah, they will. If you live in a swamp, absolutely. You don't want... Why do you think, well, you know, that's a food forest and you need swales to have a food forest? And like, the person literally thought permaculture was building a food forest with swales. That's the whole thing. And if you've listened to the other two episodes in the series so far, you know that's not the case at all. But I just need to revisit that here because now we're going to take the dangerous step of giving you techniques... People get techniques, and they, I can do that, and they go do that, and they do it wrong. So just be warned on that. And if you have not listened to episode one and two, you can go to the survivalpodcast.com, look up today's episode, uh, episode 2418, and you can find links to both of those. And if you use the tag at the bottom, uh, which is Perm Series 19, you can find every episode in this series, because you might be listening to this out in the future where I've done more of them. So let's let's define these things, these three key points we want to talk about today. What is a technique? A technique is a thing that you do or a thing that you build. And we're going to go through a whole bunch of techniques, but a greenhouse is a structure, but it's also a technique. 
right? Because it's something that we build, and then it allows us to do certain things. A swale is a technique. Composting is a technique. Wicking beds are a technique. A, a pergola on, the, on, the, on the, the south side of a house that allows vines to grow up onto it to create shade is a technique. Rotational grazing is a technique. Holistic grazing, which is slightly different, is a technique. Chicken tractoring is a technique. So you see where this all leads to. A root cellar is a technique. Okay? Um, a, a, a geothermal uh, dome is a technique. A sod house is a technique. A straw bale house is a technique. A straw bale garden is a technique. Aquaponics is a technique. Hydroponics is a technique. You got it? There are a thing that we do or a, or a thing that we build that then enables us to accomplish something. A solar dehydrator is a technique, right? And I, the, the thing itself is an object, okay? But solar dehydrating is a technique. Growing in a greenhouse is a technique. Extending a season is a technique. So when we're talking about a thing, yes, there's a component of it that is the technique. So then what is a tactic? A tactic is the way by which we implement the technique with, with the mindset on the goal for both the individual technique and the system as a whole. This is a tactic. So rotational gra grazing is a technique. How I implement that rotational grazing, exactly how long I leave an animal on an individual paddock, when I move them, why I move them, and what follows them is where I start to get tactical. A keyhole garden, which we'll talk about today, is a technique. What I do with it is a tactic. And I'm going to save that explanation for when we get to that particular technique. So how I interlock and intergroup these individual techniques and where I place them is a tactical decision. Composting is a technique. Placing it in my zone one is a tactic. Placing it in my zone one in a place that's very convenient for me on the morning that I'm walking out to do something else as I pass, there's the bin, thump, that stuff goes in there, that's a tactic. It could even be, and I always use chickens in that analogy. Maybe you don't have chickens. Maybe you just have a, a vermicomposting bin. Okay, So yeah, that's a worm composter. So you have this worm composting bin. So you keep a little little thing on your countertop, and when it's full or near full, you take it out and you dump it in your worm bin. Maybe you walk past that worm bin on the way to get in your car every day because you don't live full-time on your homestead. Like normal people, you have a job. So you set that up at a place where it's really easy for you to dump that container, and maybe you do it somewhere where there's a water supply so you can rinse that container out so it's not all skanky and turn it upside down, and you don't have to go back in the house. You go get in your car and you go to work, And that, that when you come home, you walk in, you're going to go right past that same spot. You have a nice, clean, dry compost container for your countertop. You pick it up and walk back in your house. Thinking about how to implement that composting system that way is the tactic. Composting is the technique. The implementation is the tactic. This is like a light switch for a lot of students of permaculture. As soon as they get what I just said and they fully understand now that this applies to every technique that you will ever employ, it reduces the propensity for error, and it opens up the mind of design 
and everything starts to roll out, like it starts to spiral outward, like this ever-expanding mental universe that now you have, that you can create. You can look at a place and start to say, oh, this there, that there, this here, and just bam, 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 and you're so fast with it. And you'll wonder how, and it's once those two things are linked together, and that opens the door to what is a strategy. A lot of people will confuse tactic and strategy. Now, they're synonyms. And you could make a case if you wanted to just be one of those people that they're basically the same thing. Not in the world of permaculture design when we use them as to lay out how to do a design. Okay, We're, we're looking at the world through a totally different lens than most people are used to. Most people look through the, 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 the world through the lens of being a pawn in the system. The system controls me. It tells me where to go to school. It tells me what my value is based on the degree that I have. It tells me where to go to work. It tells me how to save for retirement. It tells me what an investment is and isn't. And the TV tells me what to buy and tells me you know, when I need to get, stop using this thing and buy this new thing because the old thing is no longer in vogue. And it tells me what music to listen to. It tells me everything. Through the permaculture lens, we're looking at it through I am designing my life. So I need a place to start. And so we'll have a different strategy for each different aspect of our life. Just like the tactics, we'll try to interrelate them. I'm coming at strategy, though, from the standpoint of managing the place you live from a standpoint of producing food and providing for your life, homesteading. Whether that homestead is a big farm, a little farmstead, or just a place for two people to live. So when you're doing that, you look out at a piece of land and you say, what do I want? What do I need? What do I like? What do I hate? How much time do I have? And it leads us to a strategy. And that strategy might be, I want a cash-producing agricultural business. Now, you notice I didn't say, I want to grow apples. Because a strategy requires that we back up far enough. This is what separates it from a tactical decision. To evaluate, like, Well, in this climate, if I want a cash-producing agricultural business based on the things I like and I hate, the market that's available, what should I be producing? So that's going to push back and say, well, maybe apples is the wrong way to go. Maybe there's no money in apples here. Based on my property, my property type, the available market, the production expectations, it doesn't mean there might not be any apples here, but they're not part of my revenue model. My revenue model might really, in that situation, move over to pastured poultry. And that might be the greatest opportunity that I have. I'm not saying it is. It might be. And if it is, then that begins to be like a keystone in my strategy. Because my driving focus is a revenue-producing farm. So now what goes with that? What will they do? How will they improve the land? What does my timeline look like? Uh, what is the infrastructure that I need to do that, etc.? Now, let's change this. Pretty much the same piece of land. Say five acres in the country. What do you want? Well, what I want is myself and my wife to be able to have a place that we enjoy that provides a lot of our food. My strategy of implementation is going to be totally different because my goals are different. So when you define your strategy, you should be able to outline your strategy in no more than a paragraph. The basic things that you want and need, what you want to do, how do you want to accomplish them, etc. And you should be able to even distill that down to a single sentence that defines the overriding strategy of your property. The overriding strategy of my property is I want a beautiful place 
that provides many of the needs of myself and my wife that's relatively easy to maintain and allows us to continue our educational mission of teaching other people permaculture. Right? There used to be a monetary revenue component in there when we had a duck-egg business. That's gone now. That's changed my entire strategy. And it's made things easier because I took one of the key components of the strategy out. Right? So that's how you think of strategy. So let's think about some permaculture techniques and what they are. And, and I'm going to kind of talk about the tactics that we can use with the techniques as we go along, and I'm just going to make the tactical portion a lot shorter. And I think this is, again, why, why we should start as a designer with the strategy and then tactically implementing techniques. And we start with technique when we teach, then we explain the tactical nature of them and get to strategy because it just makes it easier to explain and easier to understand. So let's start out with a keyhole garden. What is a keyhole garden? A keyhole garden simply means that we have some sort of a garden bed that is shaped with undulations in it. Let's say C-shaped would be one way to do this, which allows us to make more edge. So imagine that you took a 4-foot by 8-foot garden in a rectangle, and it takes up 8 feet of length. If we bend that into a C, maybe it only takes 6 feet of length up. Then we make another one next to it, another one next to it. Now we have these beds that we can walk into. And then we have growth on both sides of us. So in the same square footage, we're actually able to produce more food because we have more edge to work with and we can more efficiently work a keyhole garden. So again, a keyhole garden, the easiest way to think about it would be a C. And then how many variations of that? So what if we cut a great big circle, just took a piece of paper and drew a big circle on a map or on a piece of paper, big circle. And that circle was, let's say, six feet across. Let's say eight feet across. So the center of the circle is four feet in. Can you effectively reach the center of that circle without like leaning in and smashing all the other plants growing in there if you need to plant a new plant or harvest a plant from the center of the circle? The answer is no. Also, the plants are going to be very crowded in that arrangement. Let's take an eight-foot circle and let's put three C's in it that come almost to the center. So now we can walk into the circle like a piece of pie almost, like a round-cut piece of pie. We can, all, we can reach the center from each one of them. We can reach the sides. We're never more than three feet from center. We can operate in that situation with tons of edge, and every bit can be reached and, and effectively managed. So that's, why, that's one reason keyhole gardens are so awesome as a technique. We can build an entire system of gardens that look like a big old mandala. So they're beautiful. They create patterns, but yet the pattern is functional. But let's talk about how a keyhole garden might be something that we can think about the tactics of. Well, because they're high-intensive systems, they would make a lot of sense to be very close to your kitchen in your zone one for a kitchen or a kitchen and herb garden, right? But they also have a definitive edge, and they're generally built as some form of a raised bed. So if we built a keyhole garden-type system on cinder blocks or pitch blocks or aircrete or anything like that. And let's say we went a little higher. Like I love two foot for a raised bed, but three foot's even better. Three foot is right at your waist. Everything's right there. Plenty of depth. Not the only downside. More material to build them, and it takes more dirt to fill them up. But if we had the material, either we had a natural material or a very affordable material available, and we had like a small courtyard, and we wanted it fenced in. 
Well, we could build keyhole gardens all the way around the perimeter. Now, the keyhole garden is a fence and a garden, and it maximizes edge, and it maximizes the longest edge on the property. We've now made the, if we do it right, we've probably made, let's say that we were going to make a, a, a three-sided three, uh, fence that's going to have to be like a square And it's going to come back to a house, a dwelling. So you're going to have a little bit of a fourth wall. We'll just leave that out, though. And let's say that it was just perfectly square, 50 by 50 by 50. How much edge of fencing do you have? Well, 150 feet. A keyhole design along that, that's going to base, it's going to basically double the edge with that undulation pattern. It could be less. It depends how many undulations we want to make. We do need to leave enough room that when we enter that keyhole, we can stand there comfortably and work, right? But we're gonna we're gonna let's just say we'll turn the 150 feet into 300 feet of edge that can be worked. Well, we really have more than that. Before all we had was a fence. Maybe we're gonna do a fence and just put you know a row of of things that we grow along the fence. So we have a fence row. We have stuff growing in front of it. We had 150 feet. Well, now we have, a hundred, uh, we have about 300 feet. But because we've designed the keyhole garden where we can reach all the way to the back of it, the backside's another 150 feet of edge. Now we have 450 feet of edge where we used to have 100 feet, feet of edge. Now, if we're really smart, almost everybody, what they like to do, they put the fence on the property line. <laughs> Okay, If I'm going to put this much effort into building something like a fence, I'm going to leave three or four feet from the backside to my neighbor's property line, if it's on the property line. right? It might, if I have a big piece of ground, it might just be an area that I wanted to make into a courtyard so it can keep certain animals in or certain animals out for other purposes. Well, assuming this is on my neighbor's property line, I'm going to come in, and if it's not, the same thing's going to be true. Now I've got... the I can actually go on the other side of the wall. Now I've got... Another 150 feet of edge, which is where the wall meets the ground. The original edge I would have had with any fence. Well, I can now trail vines up the back side of this wall. So now I've increased it by another 150 feet. And then you start to realize how you don't need as much space as you think you need to be highly, highly productive. And I'm going to go longer with the tactics included in this one than all the rest of the techniques. Because there's so much opportunity here to explain this. Now, the thing you're going to say is, well, that's going to be a lot more expensive than a fence. Okay, it is. But you are going to need a fence and a garden. Now you have a massive garden that can be managed by walking in a circle from one side. So now you have a garden and a fence. So you were going to have the expense of the garden and you were going to have expense of the fence. By being tactical, we've now done both in one shot. But I'm not done yet. You're probably going to want to run water across your property. At minimum, I want water all the way to the back of my property to the corners. And maybe some places along the way we come up with some hose bibs. Now, how do we do that? Well, stupid, you did, Jack, really? You don't know? You dig a hole, you drop a pipe in it, and you bury it. Well, that's work, isn't it? I'm going to build the fence anyway, and I'm going to build the garden anyway. Since the, since the keyhole garden fence that goes around my property is now three feet deep, I just take the pipe, glue it together, and throw it on the ground. I build the fence around it. When I fill it up, it's buried. It's three feet in the dirt. I've done no work. The pipe's now in the, in the ground. 
I have my stand-ups wherever I want them. Now I have an irrigated garden. I have water to every square inch of this, this, this design component of my property. I have a fence. And if I build it out of some sort of hardscape material like concrete, aircrete, stone, whatever, I have a permanent fence that will never go away. It'll never need to be painted. It'll never break down. I've done all of that through tactical function stacking, right? So some other techniques that we can come into. Contour gardens. If we have a steep hill, a lot of people think this is a hard place to garden in, but we can easily contour garden, which means we simply build raised beds on contour. So, you know, again, people get locked into society's expectation of pattern rather than natural pattern. So one of the things you see people always do for their garden, there's a fence. They build the garden either following the fence or 90 degrees to the fence in straight lines. Well, let's say that there's a hill. You go back, you look at the fence, and the hill kind of goes and kind of undulates and rounds and goes up to the, the fence. And you want your garden out in the back for whatever reason. Maybe it's where the best sunlight is. So now we build our garden beds on contour. When it rains, they harvest water. Okay? We can easily walk. Even if the hill's pretty steep, we can easily walk in between the beds because we're walking a level path instead of up and down. And we reduce erosion. So contour gardens are a technique. Terraced gardens are, this, are also a technique. And we can do terraces multiple ways. We talked a little bit about this with earthworks. But let's say again we have that hill. Well, one way we can create terraces, instead of digging out the hill, we mark a contour line using a laser level or an A-frame level or what have you. And it's just a level line through the landscape. We come downhill however far we want our raised bed to be. And we mark a line equidistance from that top line. And then we just build up a pile of rocks until when we're four foot downgrade, we're at level with, with the other side, and we fill it up with dirt. We backfill the terrace into the land. This works really great with modest slopes. Generally with heavy slopes, you need to do more of an excavation out. But when you have a modest slope, maybe you're only building up three feet, but then you're only building back four to six feet. So you, as you go back into the land, there's less and less fill required. So it's a really easy technique to implement. If you happen to be in a place where there's lots of rocks and you can get fill for very inexpensive or for no money. This was the case I had in Arkansas. I had a lot of terrain features, but there were rocks everywhere. I could literally just drive up the road. It was a dirt road in my truck and just pull over and whip, you know, 10 rocks here, pull up a little more, rip another 20 rocks, go home and just start laying out contour line rocks and just dropping dirt in front of them. And there's a terrace to plant into. See how simple it can be. That's a terrace garden. There's lots of ways to make terraces. That's just one way. There's herb spirals. Herb spirals are often used by teachers in permaculture to teach uh, microclimates. But an herb spiral is where we take rocks or some other hardscape, and we basically make a spiral. So we have the inside and the outside of a spiral. So think of it like making a, uh, building a little miniature mountain that you could take your Tonka truck when you're a kid and drive up. So you know if you go up a mountain on a road, the road never goes straight up the middle of the mountain. It goes gradually up, and it kind of circles around the mountain. So we build that spiral, and we plant herbs into it. That's a permaculture technique. Locating it close to our outdoor kitchen so that when we're cooking, the green onions and the oregano and the sage and the parsley and all are right there. 
and we're standing in our outdoor kitchen and it's raining and it's a little bit cold, but it's kind of it's kind of it's kind of nice under the cover, but it's really wet and nasty when we have to go out from under the cover of our outdoor kitchen. But our herb spiral's right there. So when we're cooking, we'll step out for those few minutes to grab. That's a tactical decision. Whether or not to have an herb spiral is a tactical decision. I actually hate them. I think they generally turn into weed spirals. They're more difficult to maintain than a simple herb garden. So an herb garden is a technique. Now, the herb garden could be in the form of a keyhole garden, a contour garden, a terrace garden, an herb spiral, a container garden. But techniques have basically sub-techniques, right? And locating that herb garden that has those fresh-cutting herbs close to where you cook is a tactic. It could be as simple as if you are in an apartment, a bunch of um, rail boxes on your patio with various herbs planted in them so that you can step out and grab them. And then you have an herb garden. So an herb garden, the reason I take it as its own technique away from gardening in general is because it serves a culinary function, right? Um, aquatics is a technique. Whether it's taken to the level of aquaponics or it's just a garden pond, it's a technique, and it can be tactically implemented. Bill Mollison has one of his videos he did very early on where he was showing how much can be done in a small space, and he was on like a third-floor apartment building. And one of the things he did was used a fish tank on the up there, and they put frogs in it. So, you know, thinking about that, let's say that you had a second or third or fourth or fifth story balcony. You had a nice kind of shady one side and kind of sunny on the other. Even if the whole thing gets hit with sun quite a bit, the lower down you are, generally, the easier it is to implement shade. So we can take something like a 100-gallon Rubbermaid stock tank. We put it down there. Now we want it to look pretty, so maybe we wall it in so it looks a little bit nicer and we can paint it some happy colors. But then we think about how to be tactical. Now we have a pond. And maybe we're not going to be growing fish to eat in there. Maybe we want to sit on our porch pick our herbs. You know, maybe we want to do this. We want to be able to walk out onto our porch and go, gee, someday I'll have a big homestead. But isn't this nice? So as I look off in the distance and I look up on my rails, part of my herb garden is cement. So I bring my hot steaming cup of water out with me and I pull some mint sprigs off and drop them in my cup and set them on my little table and I wait for my mint tea to seep. And I look over at my little pond. And what's in there? I don't know, goldfish, guppies, something pretty. And I got a little waterfall going, just a little sound of water. And then, you know, maybe I have a little bit of like hydroponics up on that wall. Just a few little pipes with a few little net pots growing my salad greens. I can grow, you know, enough for three or four salads a week right there in that little bitty space. What's making this aquatics instead of aquaponics is I'm thinking beyond, you know, growing fish that I eat once every two years and some greens. I have that little waterfall. I have that aesthetic quality going on. So then I realized that I live in a climate where there's lots of lizards. And lizards love to climb up on sunny walls of buildings. So I set up my waterfall to have a shallow area with an easy approach. Now I've got the native lizards coming in to get water. They will flock to my little oasis because I've been tactical with my implementation of aquatics on a flipping patio using an $80 stock tank and some stuff to make it look pretty. In fact, I might even be able to figure out how to set something up that kind of hangs out off the rail in a little shallow bowl with a little bubbler in it, and then the water comes back through my little lizard pond as well. What's that? That's a bird bath. Now I've got birds coming to hang out with me. And then I think, you know, what would be really cool is 
if this whole rail here that I can see through was covered in something like scarlet runner beans. So then I take a, a, you know, a long, narrow pot of some sort, I put that down at the base of that rail, I fill it up with dirt, I take a little drip line along there, and I set up a little timer, and you know, uh, twice a day that timer drip irrigates that pot from the pond water. And, uh, you know, every day when I come out, I dump a couple gallons of water back in the pond to keep it from going too low. Look what I've done with a patio using aquatics because I got strategic. And we could do that or we could do a giant one-acre pond that we're growing water chestnuts on the edge of and anything in between or even larger. Another technique is hugel culture. This is another one that can result in the type 1 errors. Hugel culture means hill culture. And it's, it's come to mean in America burying wood. And I'll just let it be that today. Whether we're burying wood to make a big pile or we're digging a hole, filling it with wood and making a raised bed on top of it, We use a wood core, and I prefer to actually call them wood core beds to be more clear on what we're doing. Because the Austrians and the Germans built this hugel culture uh, in many different ways. Again, it means hill culture. And a lot of what they did with hill culture is some of the reasons we had so much daggone problems during World War II is they would build hedgerows with them. So they would cut all the slash and useless uh, trees and bushes and stuff that they had to clear so that they could grow a field of, let's say, potatoes or wheat. And they would pile it up on where they would want a fence line. And then they would just cover it with dirt. And then it would plant a, a, a productive hedge into it, something like hazelnut. So now you've got a productive edge. And you've got a natural barrier. It turned out to be pretty damn good against, of all things, tanks. But that's another way that that technique was implemented strategically. It wasn't for you know, slowing down the advance of the Allies in World War II. It happened to. It was for creating these, these defined edges, reducing erosion, and producing more productivity. Sepp Holzer took it to another level, terraced the side of a mountain in Austria, built these hugelkultur beds up on the terraces, grew a whole shitload in them, took all of the trash trees, the spruce, It wasn't ever going to be worth much to him. Buried whatever had to be cut down in those mounds to get rid of it. That had the, the, the did a couple things. One, the wood core as it begins to break down becomes a, a, a water reservoir. It holds lots of water. Two, it, since it's in contact with the surface and subsurface, the moisture that's below the, the berm, it pulls up like a sponge into it. It's also carbon. When we put carbon in, co in soil, good things happen. And it's a slow composting system. So you take a terrace, you put these, these hugelkultur beds on them, you grow stuff for five, six, seven years in those beds, and then when they've kind of completely broken down, we come in and we bulldoze them flat and spread them out, and we've just created you know tens of thousands of dollars of compost for almost no work, and now we have this big open terrace that we can farm and grow more, or more, grow more permanent structures on. Or we might maintain that hugelkultur bed for a much longer time. But culture works, but it doesn't work everywhere, and it doesn't work in every situation. We have to be tactical about where it goes in. Backyard orchard culture is another technique. Um, and this is a technique that I really recommend that you learn more about, especially if you live on smaller properties. Um, it, it allows you to grow a tremendous amount of fruit and a tremendous variety of fruit and possibly nuts in a backyard situation. The guy that really has done more to pioneer it than anybody else is a, a guy that uh, sells a lot of trees, by the way, named Dave Wilson. And a lot of the stuff, like Bob Will's Nursery, 
Uh, Bob Wells Nursery that sponsors the MSB with a discount. Uh, a lot of their really specialty stuff they get from Dave Wilson Nursery. Dave Wilson's more of a wholesaler. He sells to other nurseries that distribute for him because he's that large. Well, backyard orchard culture is more than we put small trees in a backyard. He actually recommends that we use um, semi-dwarf, which are fairly large trees, to even full-size rootstock and prune the tree small and maintain a smaller tree with pruning. And what that does is we have a very vigorous tree, a highly productive tree, a highly resilient tree, and a tree that lives a long time. But to maximize production, you might dig one hole and put three or four trees in that one hole. And then you manage those like a multi-graft so that you have basically a quarter, a quarter, a quarter, and a quarter, let's say four different apples. Now, we can get tactical. We can think about pollination, We can select four apples that are going to be naturally good at, at, at cross-pollinating. And since they're being managed as a single tree, and since honeybees are, have a high degree of fidelity to what they're, they're pollinating, if we just make sure that they're apples that all kind of come to bloom at the same time, we're going to have massive cross-pollination and very high yields. We can also be tactical. Where do we put this thing? Well, if we have that keyhole garden fence and we've left space on the other side, Maybe we put them spaced out just along that keyhole fence. So now we've got in a very tight place, it's, it's, it's spread out, but it's a very narrow piece. We've taken almost nothing from this backyard. We've got fruit production. We've got vegetable production. We've got a fence. We've got irrigation. We've got supply water. See what I'm saying? This is how you have to think tactically as you implement these techniques. Um, another example would be composting. Composting is a technique. It's not a tactic. right? How we implement that compost is a tactic. I gave you an example in the beginning where if we place that composter, whatever it is, doesn't matter if it's just here's all the material for composting, and then when we get enough of it, we do a standard 21-day, you know, turn every four-day compost pile, fast compost, slow breakdown, doesn't matter. Just as a place where we're going to have the compostables have to go to. And by locating that in a place where we will naturally pass it once a day or at least once every other day, then we just make it part of our routine that we bring our compostables when we take that walk. We get That can be, you know, mine is the chickens. I have a 21-gallon concrete tray that sits outside the chicken coop. All the compostables go in a little pretty, you know, white thing that Dorothy likes. She bought on Amazon, a little compost container. They call it a compost container. a little lid on it. It's a little tiny trash can. She thinks it's pretty. Everything goes in there. When I go out in the morning to take care of the ducks and the chickens, I lift it up and look in there, and if it's mostly full, I grab the handle and I go out with it. And I have to fill the duck tray, so I dump the compost, and I rinse out the water trays for the ducks before I let them out. That way they're not in my way. And I, if I have the compost thing and it's kind of skanky inside, I spray it out with the hose. It's all in one. I set it to the side. I put the hose in the, the first concrete tray to fill up. I open the door, the ducks come out, they're all happy, they mess around in the water that got dumped out already, fill up the other tank, pick up the composter, pick up the duck eggs, and walk back in the house. There's, there's, there's literally no extra work. Like The compost is so integrated into the act, other activity that it's literally no work whatsoever. The chickens tear it up when the concrete tray is full. I take the concrete tray, put it where the chickens can't get to it. I cover it with a bunch of straw, throw a tarp over it, and wet it down, throw a tarp over it, and leave it there for six months. 
I give them a new tray. By the time that tray is done, that tray goes where the other tray is. The first tray comes out. And there's almost no, like when you make compost, usually this pile gets smaller. This way that I'm doing it, where the chickens are doing a lot of the breaking down of things over time, I have almost a full 21 gallons of compost. It's not a massive amount of compost, but it's 100% of every compostable that comes out of our kitchen with no work. That's strategic. How did I come up with that strategery? Is it to quote an old president-ass clown, right? Strategery. There's some real strategery around here. Anyway, um, well, I, I started out with trying to do vermicomposting. And I strategically loaded my vermicomposter for a different pathway, and everything worked for like three days, and all of a sudden there was no worms. Because fire ants that are just ridiculous here went into the worm bed, killed all the worms, and decided it was a good place to live. So I had to come up with a different composting uh, tactic because it didn't match my, my climate and my, my reality on the ground. All this stuff has to be tested against reality on the ground. Wicking beds. Wicking beds are another technique. By employing wicking beds, I use less water. So we have a water reservoir in the bottom of the bed that wicks up through to the plants. We can integrate with that with aquaponics. We've talked about that a ton on the show. But we don't have to have aquaponics to do wicking beds. Most wicking beds don't incorporate aquaponics. Now, let's just think about what we've already talked about today. Remember that giant fence thing that's based on keyhole gardens? It goes all the way around our courtyard or maybe our little backyard? Hmm, if we put all the work in that into making it out of a hardscape that would be permanent, it would be pretty easy to either use some sort of epoxy liner or just really long strips of uh, pond liner and make the entire bottom of that into a wicking bed. So we could have 150 feet of fence with, what, what did we come up with? 450 feet of edge that's all irrigated subsurfacely with a wicking bed. Now, I'm going to tell you that before I did that shit, I would probably build myself a couple small wicking beds to run my kitchen herb garden out of to get experience with it and decide if this is what I really wanted to do and did it work for me and my environment. But that ain't a half bad idea now, is it? Now, since I've already built in my irrigation, I have water available for my downspouts to get the water to the bottle of the wicking bed all the way around the whole dadgone place. Now, when we build a wicking bed, one of the things that we have to make sure we do, because otherwise we have what's called a type 1 error, is we have to have a place that when too much water goes in the wicking bed, that there's a place for it to overflow. So if we have three foot of depth, maybe we have a foot of water. If we'll have rocks in there, lava rocks, something like that, uh, debris of some sort that's easy to flow through. And then we'll have a, a liner, like let's say weed blocker, a couple layers, maybe even three layers of weed blocker. And then we have a soil mixture that's nice and friable and very wicking on top of that. And then we'll have a mulch layer on top of that. And then we'll fill that reservoir up with water and to the point where it is at capacity. And when it gets over capacity, it will overflow, and that overflow has to come out somewhere. Hmm, what were we going to plant again on the backside of that fence? The fruit trees, the backyard orchard culture, or maybe even larger fruit trees. Let's say we space those trees out. We're going to make fairly large trees uh, at, let's say, you know, 12-foot spacing along 50 feet. So we have four trees per wall. Hmm, 
That would be 12 trees. That's a lot of production. So we have 12 trees planted along either the property line or the courtyard boundary. And then we have, in each wall, four places where the water from the wicking bed that's inside the wall overflows. They happen to be tactically located right next to the four fruit trees for that wall. You see where this is going. In fact, we could you know, just have a little pipe kind of come down and basically set up a timer that that water that we put in there with no extra work just comes on every day for a certain amount of time, ensuring that the wicking bed reservoir is never empty and watering the trees at the same time. Techniques, tactics, strategy. Got it? Right? How awesome is that? Greenhouses are techniques, as are any seasonal extender is a technique. Could we do that with our keyhole garden bed? Hmm. There are a lot of ways we could extend a season with that. One would be, you know that water that we pump into the reservoir if we made it into a wicking bed? Well, if we had a way that... We had some uh, solar water heaters on the south wall especially that when the temperature was below a certain temperature, when the water came on, the water went through those solar hot water heaters before it went into the reservoir. So you just have a basically a, a, a bifurcated uh, joint with a temperature sensor on it. If this, then that, and if that, then this. Once the temperature is below here, go there. Uh, and we set it so that it ran slow. So it ran a very slow, so it took a long time for that water to flow when it was cold outside. We would be constantly heating the water with passive solar radiation that was going into the reservoir, which would keep the bottom of the reservoir, the soil, much warmer, and our plants are going to get started faster in the spring. They're going to last longer in the fall. We could do this in a much smaller version. Maybe we don't really have the money, the resources, the time, or the inclination to build 150 feet of keyhole garden, but we could build one nice little keyhole garden, you know, out in our property, and we could set that up so that it could be easily just covered with greenhouse uh, film and just an easy kind of snap together, put away PVC type situation extender season. We can build a greenhouse, and we can be tactical with that by implementing, let's say, an aquaponic system in the greenhouse like I did and like the redesign that I put the video out on earlier this week that we'll be doing. So greenhouses are techniques, but we can tactically implement them. If we have the right situation, and a lot of times, like, I don't have the right situation here. First of all, I'm more concerned with staying cold than hot, Okay. Though you can do this in a way that actually helps cool houses. We won't get into it today. It's too complicated to explain. But I don't really have a south-facing end of this house that it makes sense to build a greenhouse onto. If I did, an attached greenhouse makes a lot of sense. Because now I can walk from my house into my greenhouse. I don't ever have to be outside. So it could be 27 degrees outside, windy and cold and miserable, And I could be sitting surrounded by banana trees, a little pond, some passion flowers, and it could be 87 degrees, and I can bake and bask in the sun while everybody else is cold and miserable because I'm tactical about the implementation of my technique. You know, I want to point out there's many more techniques, some that people would never even think of as techniques. I was walking around. I've said, before I do this show today, I need to get the right mindset. Let me take a walk around my property. I realize I have this one squirrel showing up again that the dogs haven't killed yet. And I, I thought, you know, I wish, myself, I wish I had more squirrels. I hated squirrels when I lived in Arlington because I had this one squirrel 
that would destroy my peach tree. He would come to my tree and he would grab a peach like a day before it was ripe enough to pick. He would take two bites out of it, throw it on the ground. Take another one, two bites out of it, throw it on the ground. I had to kill him with a gamo pellet gun and he was in a, he was a strategic squirrel. He was, he would sit in a place where if I missed him, I knew I'd like hit the window of my neighbor's house and that would be bad for, you know, neighborly relations. So I had to wait to get the perfect opportunity to put a pellet in him. It took me like a whole season to get rid of the squirrel. We would call that selective hunting or selective harvest or tactical, I, mean, I would say, uh, uh, um, a tactical uh, animal harvest, right? But where I live now, it would be pretty easy to shoot squirrels with .22s if they were a lot of, there were a lot of squirrels around here. So if I shoot squirrels, I have a meat yield. So hunting the squirrel that's eating too much of my fruit and my nuts is a technique. But what if I'm tactical about it? What if I say, self, you know what? You have 25 acres. You have a woodlot over there. There's a lot of squirrels that live over there. That's where the squirrels come from. I don't consider the squirrels a scourge, so I'm not going to go in there with a flamethrower and destroy the forest to get rid of the squirrels. Maybe I actually want to make the squirrel population more resilient. So I put in some squirrel boxes for them to breed in, and I put in some black oil sunflower feeders so that they can get through the time of the year when they don't have as much abundance. That way I can harvest lots of squirrels, but I have a resilient population that will come back next year. The problem is the solution. Well, now maybe I can harvest 30 or 40 squirrel meals a year, because whether you believe it or not, squirrels is actually some really good stuff, and at the same time I'm protecting them from taking too much of my surplus, but they can have a little bit of it. That's a technique. And it's the tactical implementation of a technique. Shooting the squirrel is a technique. Thinking about managing the entire system so the squirrel population is controlled, yet resilient enough to be a meat yield that you literally do no work for. Right? The most work you do is pulling the skin off of the squirrel, which is actually really easy once you know how to do it. And if you ever try my grilled squirrel recipe, which I will not give out today, but I will in the future, I promise you, and I've done it before, you will never scoff at squirrel ever again. Squirrel, it's what's for dinner. That's a technique. And many more. Like, what else can you think of? How many things can you come up with that are techniques? And this is the beauty of permaculture. Since it's a design science, we don't care what the technique is as long as it does what? It doesn't hurt the earth, it doesn't hurt people, and it returns surplus. Or whatever surplus it produces can be returned to the goal of the first two. We'll take anything. We have a giant quiver and a great big bow, and we'll put all the arrows we can in that quiver including, I don't need this arrow now, but it can go in the quiver. My quiver is unlimited. The quiver is bigger than 20 of me. And whenever I need an arrow, I know, ah. And that's, it's, the, it's the quiver of knowledge. We have taken the arrow, we have put it into the quiver of knowledge, and now I have the situation, ah, this is the technique. As I put it in my bow, I will think about the tactics with which I shoot it. Right? That's how you have to think about it. So let's, I gave you a lot of tactical components here, so we're going to go fast through the tactical portion. But how do we get those things? Like, as I was rolling through this, somebody like, what the stop? Slow down. What the hell? How do you know all this shit? Why, how are you pulling this out of your ass? What is going on here? It's very actually simple. There's four things you do. And once you understand the interrelationships, everything just falls out. Number one, determine the connections between the systems. Or how we can create a connection between the system if one's not there naturally. So any technique that we come up with, What are the other techniques that it connects to? What are the other activities that it connects to? The composting. Composting requires the human to move the compost to the compost area. Right? Other ways we can do that, but well, there's going to be some piece of that. So now we know that the compost 
pile is connected to the kitchen where the food is processed and the human that acts as the conveyance system between the two. Okay, What else is the compost connected to? In my situation, it's connected to the chickens. So it's logical that the chickens would be where the compost is. And then they perform the function of turning the compost. I don't have to. That's the connections. Once you understand those things are connected, you almost, like, what would make you do anything different than what I did? I didn't do it because I was smart. I, it's the same thing with people say, Jack, how did you figure out where your swells would go? That's where the contours are in the land. That's where they fit. Nature had the pattern. I uncovered it. If you understood that, when I gave you a laser level, you'd end up with the exact same set of swales for this system if you had my strategy. There's no doubt. You would end up, you would have them within, within millimeters of what I did because it was already there. You just had to see it. Well, once, you know, why are the chickens where the chickens are? Because the landowner before me put a building there that made a perfect chicken coop, chicken duck coop now, and I didn't think it was worth moving. I thought it was, was it where I would have put it? Maybe, maybe not. I'm not sure. But it wasn't so bad. It wasn't a type 1 error. It wasn't worth moving. So it works. So once the chickens went there, the rest of that system, it had to come out that way. Especially once the worms got killed by the fire ants. Find the connections between the systems. Integrate the systems. This is step two. Integrate the systems and stack the functions. The keyhole garden scenario I laid out. Okay, we needed a fence, we needed a garden, we needed the garden to be irrigated, we didn't want to do too much work with the irrigation. We wanted fruit trees, we had irrigation from one that we could fall, fail over onto the other, right? So we figured out how to integrate the systems and stack the functions. If I kept rabbits, I would probably move the compost bin to a different place where it got more shade or provide some shade, but if I had rabbits... I would put my rabbit hutches right over where I dump my compost for my chickens so that their droppings fell right in there. I would stack the function of... Now, this is what I said. Like The person must take the compostable to the compost system. Well, not if the compostable is rabbit shit. Because now the rabbits simply drop their shit into the composter. The chickens do their job, and I have the fertility. So you want function stacking once we integrate the systems is incredibly important. How many things can I make a thing do? I have a very hot back porch. It faces south. I don't. My back porch is great. It faces north. So it stays nice and cool in my hot climate. Let's say my house was flipped around and my back porch was just baked in the heat. But I lived in a colder climate in the winter where I really wanted it to be warm. Well, instead of I have on my back porch, I have a great big roof. So when it rains, I can be out there and I have ceiling fans on there to spin around and keep us cool. But let's say I wanted to be more of a passive system and I had a different orientation. Well, I could put a pergola up there. Pergola is like a roof. It's like you put over a, a deck. It's got rafters going, you know, long ways, but it's not covered. Water can fall through it. So sun can get through it. But it produces like some, you know, motley shade. But in the... In the winter, when I want the sun, the sun's lower in the sky anyway and coming in underneath. And as the sun gets higher in the sky in the hotter part of the year, the pergola's giving me some shade. So now the pergola gives me shade, it looks nice, and it still lets the sun in for the winter. But I'm not done yet. Because the next thing I'm going to do, maybe I'm going to plant grapes or kiwis, train them up onto the pergola. 
Now the pergola is growing food, but the plants are providing shade at the hottest time of the year. And since they're deciduous and they drop their leaves, when, when winter comes around, they're letting all of the sunlight possible in, and they're actually going to moderate the climate as the heat increases. In other words, they'll get more and more leaves later and later into the season, So they'll provide a little shade, then more shade, then a lot of shade at the time that I need the most shade. Plus, they're providing me food. Now that thing's doing multiple functions, right? I mean, this is function stacking at the most basic level, and we can make this as integrated as possible, right? I have an aviary. In my aviary, I keep quail. I also grow food. Well, the quail are really good about killing all of the bugs that come in on the ground, so I have a lot less pest pressure in the aviary. Plus, you know, little, like, wood rats and cotton rats and stuff like that that like to eat your vegetables, they can't get in there. Then the aviary acts as a, as, a, as a scaffold for vining crops that climb up on it. As those crops mature, they produce more shade for the quail in the hot time of the year. It's, again, that's an integrated function-stacked system. So we have determined the connections between systems, then integrate the systems and stack the functions. Then we have the third component to this, Eliminate labor via automation and natural processes. That's what happened when we put the rabbits over the compost pit. Now the human doesn't have to exhibit the labor. That's what happened when we put the automated timer watering the wicking beds inside the keyhole gardens that overflowed to water the trees so that one action that can be completely and totally automated took care of two functions. And if we're really strategic about it, Then we put the trees where they're going to provide shade to the garden in the hot western sun, and we make sure we don't shade out the nice, cool eastern sun. So maybe all the trees aren't on the back side of the wall. Maybe the trees are on the inside of the wall on one side, the outside of the wall on the other. It all depends on how we come across with our tactics. But we want to, we want to look at that component. How do we eliminate labor via automation and natural process? Next, consider restrictions based on the scale of permanence before we make our decisions. Let's talk about scale of permanence. P.A. Yeoman was the guy that really made this popular in the, in the, the world of regenerative agriculture, permaculture, etc. He had his own scale of permanence. So I'm going to give you kind of the, the, the modernized Jack Spirico version. How hard is it to change? The, the easier it is to change, the lower, the harder it is, the higher. And if it's really high, then it's, it's like a type 1 error. You have to live with it. So if there's a mountain over there, and that mountain creates any type of effect on my property, while I can do things that maybe moderate the effect, I can't get rid of the mountain. The mountain is not going anywhere. Landforms in general, not always, but in general, are very high on the scale of permanence. Coming down from that would be something like what your neighbors do. You can ask them to change what they do, but they don't have to. And even if they do, they might sell the house or the place to somebody else who goes back to doing it the other way that you don't like. Right in league with your neighbors is the government restrictions and regulations, very high on the scale of permanence. We can lift the regulation that says that you can't have backyard chickens, but it's very difficult to do. Some people have been able to do it, but I would prefer to just go someplace that it doesn't exist. High on the scale of permanence. Um, a, a, this is why we have to think about our design decisions. That really cool rock wall keyhole garden that we've been talking about through this whole thing, it's a very permanent structure. It's a lot of work to dis it's a lot of work to build and it's even more work to dismantle it. 
A lot of money and time goes into it. We better really be sure when we put a fence in that we actually want a fence there. Right? And the more, the better the fence, the more permanent it is and the higher it is on the scale. So we need to consider the restrictions based on the scale of permanence and we need to consider the technique that we're implementing based on the scale of permanence. A pond is a very permanent decision. Even if it fails and it ends up being a hole. The bigger the pond, the bigger the hole, the more permanent the hole that's an empty pond that didn't get filled. So we have to consider both the restrictions and the technique based on the scale of permanence. And again, the, the, the restrictions are really important because a lot of times even something that can be changed if it's high on the scale maybe is not worth it. So we sit back and say, well, this thing that's creating a shadow is a tree in my neighbor's yard. Even if I talked him into cutting that tree down, He might resent me for it later. That's pretty permanent. New homeowner might come in and plant a new tree. And maybe it'll be gone for a while, but it's going to come back. So maybe I just need to design around that restriction rather than try to eliminate what I perceive as the problem. If it's my tree, I can cut it down. But how long has that tree been there? How mature is it? What else does it do? Do I really want to do? Do I really need to do this? We have to think about that scale of permanence. Because not only is the scale of permanence about what we can change and what we can't, to me it's much bigger. It's about the responsibility we take when we change something that took a long time to get there in the first place. If I cut down a 75-year-old elm tree, I have taken away what in a day what nature took 75 years to create. And I really need to think about whether that's the right thing to do so that I can grow some lettuce. Because I bet you I can figure out how to grow some lettuce some other way. So that's it, really. From a tactical standpoint, we determine the connections between the systems, integrate the systems and stack the functions, eliminate labor via automation and natural process, and consider restrictions and techniques based on the scale of permanence. So that means now we're ready to finally come up with where we should have started in the first place with our strategy. And it's actually really easy to do. Because the strategy allows you then to develop a plan. So the strategy is just a top-line level of thinking. And here's all you really have to answer. There's more to it, but I wanted to make it as simple as possible to help you form a strategy today. Because once you have your strategy, everything else, then you can judge it appropriately. Then we don't make type 1 errors. Then we're not out building a giant keyhole garden fence today because Jack Spirico sold us on it being a good idea because we're going to think about that shit for a full season before we spend that much money, time, and effort to make sure this really is what we want to do. Maybe we're just going to build one fence like that for now and see how it works. Maybe we're going to go build a little bitty one and test it. But we're going to drive all those decisions off our strategy. So, your first question, what do you need? What do you need? I was about to say, what do you need your property to do for you or provide for you? But remember, this you could be building a business that doesn't have anything to do with fruit or salad or, or, or birds or chickens or ducks or anything, right, or cattle or pigs, It's going to be completely non-ag. So when you're thinking about strategy, you can really pull back, and that's how you start to see how permaculture can apply to anything. What do you need? What do you need from your property? Because needs and wants are different. So what do you think the next question is? What do you want from your property? You don't need beauty, but you want it. You don't need X percent of your calories, but you want it. You start thinking about that way, you start to realize that the need question is really bare bones. You need your property not to get lost. 
You need your property not to be damaged. There's a lot of negatives in the need. What do you want? I want a farm. I would say that once you answer the question, I want, with I want blank, you need to add another question here. Why do I want that? Followed by, do I really want that? Followed by, does this really make sense? If you can't talk yourself out of it, leave it on your list of things that you want. And then, what do you like? What do you like? And at this point, now we're starting to think about that as a general question, but we're also thinking about that as a as applies to how far I've gotten. Like, so you say you want a farm. Well, what do you like? Do you like animals? Do you like killing them? Because if you don't like killing animals, pastured poultry is probably not for you. Pastured poultry that creates eggs might be, but eventually they become expensive pets and they get cold. So if you really don't like killing animals, you might want to minimize livestock on your property. Do you like do you like sales? Do you like having your lifestyle dependent on your revenue model and vice versa? You may not, but you might real quick talk yourself out of a farm. At least the kind of farm that's a revenue generating farm here. Or you might say, I love that stuff. So then you, you know, you might turn into the next Darby Simpson or, you know, uh, uh, who am I trying to think? Greg Judy. You know, Greg Judy's a perfect example though. Most people don't think strategically enough and they don't develop a strategy. Greg Judy's strategy was, I want to make a living primarily with cattle. I might do some other things, but I want to make a living taking care of cows. I like it. I want to be able to bring cattle in. I want to be able to fatten them up. I want to be able to sell a high-quality product. Once he had his strategy, the first thing he realized is, I don't want to own enough land to be able to do what I want to do. So he uses a lease land model. He has some pretty good-sized piece of land, but in general, most of the land that he uses, he doesn't own and has no intention to own. As long as the lease on the land is far lower than the value it creates in the cattle that he sells, it's free land as far as he's concerned. Because he has the right strategy. We get so attached to ownership. I'm going to tell a little of the side story here. I've talked about this before, but it was a thing that popped up on Facebook. It had to do with leasing vehicles. And, um, man, I'm telling you, I, actually the guy was complaining about how expensive vehicles are today. And I said, you should consider leasing and whatever. And the guy said, well, I've never considered that. I wonder why. And some other guy popped up because it's more expensive because you're buying the first part of the vehicle, not the second. And my response was, I'm sorry, but you're wrong. And I laid out the numbers with, with the vehicle we're driving. I'm driving a $60,000 vehicle. And every three years, whether I want to then turn that into buying it or just roll it into another one, I'm saving $14,000 of what the person buying it with decent credit would do. Because my strategy was I want my wife in this vehicle. I don't care how it happens. Do you understand that that's so critical here? That when we define the strategy, then we're looking for the best techniques and tactics to accomplish the strategy. Not what we're emotionally attached to. That's why the needs and wants are very important and the likes and the hates. What do I hate? Because then we can actually get a very clear picture of what we want to accomplish. And then since everything requires you to do something, how much time do you have? And that is to get it done, plus to maintain it, plus to harvest it. Got it? And then, what realities are you ignoring? 
We can get so caught up in the romanticism of this is going to produce all this stuff. Well, how are you going to harvest it? Who are you going to sell it to? Can you really use it all? You know, does your climate really allow for what you think it does? Or did you watch a video that said Sepp Holzer grew a lemon in the Alps so you think you can do it in Maine? We have to take into consideration those realities on the ground. Once we have those realities on the ground considered, we're going to just roll back through there again. What do we need? What do we want? What do we like? What do we hate? How much time do you have? And what realities are you ignoring? We couple that with just to flat out our, our personal goals, what we want for ourselves. Because I think what happens to a lot of people to get into the homesteading mindset is they decide that they want so much more than what they need. And they want so much that they're going to drive themselves to hate what they're doing. There are tons of videos on YouTube of people quitting homesteading because they have developed a hatred for that which they once loved because they try to do too many things at once. So we get very methodical and we start with that highline strategy. And this is why I think a lot of people would, would be better off with a design restriction starting off with space. So if you don't have it, you create it for yourself. And what I mean by that is so many people think, I want 100 acres, I want 40 acres, I want at least 20 acres. Look, guys, I understand that. I'm not putting it down. Trust me, I'm not putting down having land. I love the concept of lots of land. I would love to have more land than I do. But there's a difference between land you have and land that you, you manage or design. And I think most people can do so much with a half acre to an acre from a production standpoint that if what they really want is their family to eat really well off of their own property, that that's all you need. And it gets really easy to do a good job when you have that small piece of land. And the reason is you, 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 you are forced to focus. You are forced to focus. When you have five acres, man, I'll put some trees over there and I'll put that over there and I'll dig a pond there. You, you know, think about my story about Bill Mollison in the back patio and then my version of it. You put somebody on a patio that's four foot wide by ten foot long and every single decision is going to end up being a good decision. And every single decision is going to be what you'd call a small and slow solution, which is a principle we'll talk about in the next episode. Which means that if we see an error, it's going to be very easy to fix. Ah, I put the stock tank here. Look at the way it gets hot in the sun. Boy, that other corner would have been better. Let's drain it down a little bit, throw some PVC pipe under it, and roll it over there. Way easier than fixing the big old garden pond, which is way easier than fixing the great big old giant digging around half acre pond. We stay in those small, slow spaces. We start to really think, because every decision clearly takes away another option. If this, then that is a great way to think about it. If I put this thing here, that space is now being used for this thing. Now there's a vertical space above it, and I can use that too, but this space is gone. What else do I want? What else do I need? What do I like? What do I hate? That gets really easy to determine whether that thing goes there or not. But when we have lots of space, we can get really sloppy really fast, too. And I'm telling you, acre will plumb wear your ass out, properly designed. You do an acre designed like I talked about today with a keyhole fence around it, I'm just, I wouldn't even do that. I wouldn't even think about doing the whole acre that way. Are you kidding me? I wouldn't want to try to keep up with it all. But I might make that little courtyard inside that acre, and that's a place I can let my dogs out or keep my dogs out of. You know, if I make a different way out of the house for them, 
then that's an area that I can do all kinds of stuff inside of that they won't mess up. I might even bring it down a lot smaller than we talked about. You know, maybe I do it on the corner of my house that's right out here myself. Maybe that's where I came up with the idea. And I have this nice little courtyard that I'll look out of my office window into. Gee, one of the walls is already there because it's my outdoor kitchen. Hmm, maybe that's a good idea. Put one little gate there, and all of a sudden I've got this really close to my kitchen herb garden. Ain't nowhere near as big as I talked about. Boy, but that little space, you know, that little space is probably 250 square feet. You don't think that every square inch of that 200 square feet, 50 square feet is going to be well designed when I'm forced to design inside that piece? See, and that's another thing that we need to start thinking more and more in our systems of design, even when we have larger systems of design. Once we come up with a strategy and we start thinking of techniques and we say this technique makes the most sense in this point, okay, so now we have this spot on our property and it's connected to the house this way. Okay, everything that's in between those two things and around those two things, let's design the shit out of this. Let's get every single bit we can get out of this space before we touch anything else. And then all of the sudden the design starts to come together, whether you're actually implementing it or just planning it. It's so much easier if you give yourself restrictions. Again, design a living room. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, just pick out all the furniture and decorations for a living room. Well, what living room? A living room. Now, if I give you a, a floor plan, tell you how high the ceiling is, what the tile, what the, the floor is made out of, the walls are made out of, where the windows are, where the fireplace is, on a piece of paper, design a living room. Well, a couch goes here, love seat goes there, entertainment system here, some artwork over there, some crown molding around. It's just easy. Because you have the restrictions. Define your own restrictions and then use the elegance of design to address the situation. But start out with a strategy. You know, My strategy, again, is a homestead that provides a significant portion of the food that Dorothy and I eat that requires as little work as possible on our part to maintain and keep it going and provides an educational experience for the people that come here as well. It's that simple. Then everything gets driven off that strategy. And then this is what happens. I want this thing. Does that further your strategy? No. Okay, either don't do it or figure out how to make it further your strategy. This is going to be a lot of work. Okay, so it, it, it breaks the rule of the strategy. How do I automate it? One of our getting tactical discussions, right? So that it doesn't do that. How do I make this fit my strategy? Or eventually I say, okay, this is not part of my strategy. This is an ego thing or this is an entertainment thing, and I want it the way that a yuppie wants a grotto in their pool. Okay, fine. But you'll find very few instances of actually needing to do that if you ask yourself these hard questions, and most importantly, you're honest with yourself in answering them. And I always say the best way to get your mind into the mindset of a designer and through the permaculture lens Go design someone else's property. I didn't say go start digging holes or building walls. Just find a friend, family member, and say, I want to just sit in your backyard to figure out what I would do with this property if it was mine. Well, I don't want to do it. I'm not asking you to do it. The reason it'll work, you are not emotionally attached to that other person's property. You could sit in a park and design a park. You can sit at a church and design their backyard gardens. Anywhere. 
You can take a picture from Google Earth at random of a suburban lot and start designing it. There might be some reality on the ground but that, that you won't be able to see, but it doesn't matter. This is just an exercise. You do four or five of those, and it doesn't have to be a high level like you would submit as a design for like a permaculture certification or to a client. It just sketched. Just bubble diagram. You're going to put a keyhole garden in. Don't shape every bit of it. Just write a freaking oval and write keyhole garden. Right? And then how is that? Because the interconnections are way more important. The aesthetics we get to as we design that level of design. Here we're just doing the interrelationships, the strategy, the tactics, and the techniques. So hopefully these three have really expanded your view into permaculture. I want to talk about one thing here real quick before I wrap up. Um, I got a question recently from a person who lived in Florida that was looking for a place to go study the discipline that is permaculture. Generally speaking, that would be pursuing something called a PDC or permaculture design certification. Um, there are videos in today's show notes that you can watch that are part of the permaculture master class from Jeff Lawton. And after watching this, you can decide if you want to spend $1,500 and take an online certification course in permaculture that is as good as it gets. Okay, And I'm going to be up front. I am an affiliate for Jeff, and if you do that, I'll make a little bit of money. I'm telling you, don't go do it. I'm not saying not to do it. I'm saying just don't go do it. Think about it. Um, the next episode, I'll talk a little bit more about what a PDC is, what a permaculture design certification is, and who it makes sense for and who it doesn't. The reality here is the best teacher in this is yourself and yourself taking a walk in the forest. Like I said, this morning... When I was getting ready to do this episode, I took a walk around my property. Even after I did all the work, I talked about you know getting stuff done and how nice it was out while my head's here. What I'm saying is I had done all that. I had done my outline. I was ready to go. I had switched from coffee to iced tea, and, and I had my lunch. And I was I, everything was ready. I was ready to sit down and go, Hi, folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of The Survival. I was ready to do that. And I said to myself, well, let me go take a walk. I just took a walk around the property, looked at some things, and get my head in that standpoint. I now have emerging forests all over my property. Those forests are my teachers. Take a walk in the woods. Think about your property. Bubble diagram things. Go through these three episodes, and there'll be, like I said, there'll be three more before the series is complete. And I think that most of you, if you'll do the work, what I'm going to give you in this, this six-part series is everything you need to make good design decisions on your homestead. You can consider getting a, a consultant. I think that's actually a really valuable thing to do a lot of times. But I think if you get a consultant before you have your strategy, you don't get the most out of your consultant. You should have your strategy and your, your techniques and your answers to all the questions we're coming up with kind of figured out. And then what a consultant does is go, you know, I had someone that did that, and this is what happened, and it flooded their house, so we really need to move that over there. That's that's the value. Oh, I see what you're doing there, but look, you didn't even think about the fact that you have this front end loader on a tractor. So we can do large-scale composting with everything that comes out of that barn over there with a the front end loader if we do this thing so that it actually will fit in there to do it instead of turning it with a pitchfork. That's what a consultant does for you. Yeah, I know you think you want a pond there, but with your soil type, it's going to fail and flood your house. I mean, those are the you know, those are the things that really when you, when you kind of get up to that level of needing a consultant. The more you've, it's like a lawyer, like the more you've done to draft a contract where he just has to go, this was stupid, this is going to get you sued, let's write up a better conclusion, and then they put an hour of work 
into fixing your contract for you, and they bill you $300, or you have them draft a contract and they charge you $1,600, and then they don't even get the contract, the things that you were really concerned about, because they just did it generically, that's the way to look at this if you're thinking about getting a consultant on your property. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you that one way you can help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do is to do your online shopping through tspaz.com. And today's item of the day is really great. Um, it is perfect for a very simple form of automation. It is the Century 24-Hour Mechanical Timer. I hate timers. They are needlessly complicated, and this one isn't. It works on a 24-hour rotary. You just set it to whatever time it is. If it's noon, you set it to 12 noon. The arrow says 12 noon. It's 12 noon. And then each hour has four pins. If the pin is down, it is on. If the pin is up, it is off. So if you want something to run from 8 o'clock in the morning to 8 o'clock at night, you push all the pins between the two eights down, and you set it to the current time, and you plug it in, you plug something into it, and that's it. It's the whole thing. If you wanted something to run for 15 minutes, two, twice a day, you push down to 15 minutes here and to 15 minutes there. And if it got out of sync, unless it's something that really has to happen when it's light or dark, it doesn't even matter because it's going to run at the same intervals anyway. So I love this thing. I use it on pumps for my ponds. Uh, I have this exact same timer on all my fish tanks to turn my lights on and off so I don't forget to do that. So, you know, on a weekend when I don't come in the office until like 2 o'clock, the fish aren't like in the tank. It's not worth it anymore. Life sucks. It's dark forever. Like, timer takes care of that. They're nine bucks, guys. Nine bucks for this timer. Bulletproof. Always works, just like everything else I recommend. You can find it all at TSPAS. And remember, while I have all of my reviews alphabetically, you can see the most current reviews. You can just go to the survivalpodcast.com and scroll down. You can see all the reviews I've ever done uh, in, in timeline. Um, it doesn't matter what you buy. If you start at TSPAS and use my links, whatever you eventually buy, no matter what it is, helps us out. Uh, you can do that so simply. And if you enjoy the show, hey. Why not do so? I got another announcement for you today. The Survival Podcast is on Spotify. And boy, it was hard to get on Spotify. I don't know why it was so hard. It was like the Spotify system hated me. Uh, I tried to submit my podcast on Spotify. And it said, your podcast is already in Spotify. And I was like, yeah, but I can't find it. And no, it's not. And even when I looked for my name, Spirico, I only found other people's podcasts that I had been on or mentioned in their notes. So I was very angry, and I emailed the Spotify people and said, please help me, and they tried to help me. It took them like three weeks of back and forth, and they finally said, we manually shoved you in the Spotify, and I'm there now. But apparently people using the app still can't find me. And I emailed them about it, and they said they're going to help, but I need your help. If you're a Spotify user, you can go by the site today, and there's a link. And if you click that link, it will take you to the web version of Spotify. Even on your device, it will bring up your browser. And you can log into your Spotify account. You can subscribe to me there. And then I will show up in your app. And if you search on the web player in podcasts for the Survival Podcast Spirico, I will show up. But apparently, if you search for that in the app, I won't. What I think I need to kind of help me here in getting Spotify to keep working with me or maybe just to kick some kind of algorithm in is a bunch of subscribers. Now, I, this is what I, let me tell you what I'm not saying. If you don't use Spotify, don't care about Spotify, never don't want it or don't like it, I'm not saying go get an account and subscribe to me. I'm not asking you to do that. So if you're a Spotify user, even if you tend to listen to me a different way, either go to the article and use the link one way or another, find me, and please subscribe to me on Spotify because that will 
in their mind make me legitimate and uh, help help them you know find it in their hearts to figure out what the hell's wrong because uh, they have been and I want to be clear about the people over there they've been great in helping me they really have. Uh, and I just think it's a big market, and I started hearing from a lot of you guys going, why aren't you there? I love Spotify. So I've done what I can to make sure I'm in Spotify, and I will try to be in any uh, platform that I can. So if you use a platform to listen to your podcast, I'm not in it, and you're having to make an exception for me. Tell me about it, and if there's anything I can do to get in there, I will. But if you use Spotify, and I would say, like, if you if you have a Spotify account, even though you don't generally use it, 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 you would still be doing me a favor if you subscribed, okay? So uh, post is there, and it'll go out in the Daily Mail, what have you, but we are now in Spotify. That brings us to our song of the day. We're in Jackson Brown week, and uh, the song today from Jackson Brown is a recent song. I think it was 2014 when this was released. It's called The Drums of War, and it was mainly about our current wars in the Middle East, but it could apply to any war, especially with America. And it's how enthusiastic this country rushes into war. That's what this song's really all about. The, the TV will tell us that there's bad people somewhere that need to die, and we just get on board with it so quick. And you can, I, listen, guys, I think you can believe in your country. I think you can believe that we're, I don't completely agree with you, but I think you can believe that we are generally right when we use military force. I can think, I, I, I think that you can believe that we've always been right, if you want to. And I would still ask you this. Since we're talking about taking lives again, another time, more, don't you think before you just say, yeah, let's go do it, you should at least fully understand the situation. You're talking about somebody's brother or father or daughter dying from a United States bombing. Don't you think that we should at least consider the other side of it when the drums of war are being beaten by politicians in the media. And there's a reason that America, of all countries, has an over-exuberance when the drums of war are beaten. We don't sacrifice the way most other nations do when it comes to war. Now, I know some of you are mad and you're talking about how many wars we fought. And That's not what I mean. If there's a war in a country that we fight in, that country suffers, even the people that are on our side. We sit here with our iPhones and our big screen TVs and our luxury cars, and yes, we suffer when our family doesn't come home. We suffer when our family comes home maimed. Those of us who serve like myself, we suffer when we come home and no one gives a shit. We suffer, those who serve, to the point of you know over 20 veterans a day committing suicide. But we don't suffer in that we don't have our house demolished. We have these two giant oceans that have been really great at protecting us and insulating us from the consequences of war. I'll tell you societies that do not have long-term wars. They have conflicts, but they don't have long-term wars. What we think of as anarchist-style hunter-gatherer societies. Because... Everybody is affected by the decision to go to war, and everybody has the potential to die, and everybody has the potential to lose. So we think a little bit more. I'm not saying just be anti-war. But if you're not anti-war, you're pro-war, which means you're pro-death. War should be a last resort, not a first response. And we should all consider carefully when the people who have lied to us in so many ways, in so many situations, once again, beat 
the drums of war. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Long before the peace was lost, who are the prophets for? Of our youth, of freedom and the truth.